Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You are listening to Tech Time with Summers F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called Testing, 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 Is This Thing On? And I'm joined today by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com, the man with the plan from Techistan, and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summers F1. So, Summers, it's been quite a while since we've seen you, but man, I think we have some catching up to do. Yeah, we totally do. Good to be on again with you, Matt, and uh, a really exciting time of the year for somebody like myself because we've got all the car launches and pre-season testing just around the corner. Yes, and there are many intrigues which we were about to discuss, but before we get to those, I need to remind everyone that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Well, except for you. You're usually pretty much right. Sometimes. (laughs) Okay, so before we talk, because we've now seen all of the cars, before we talk about them, why don't you just give us a quick update as to how we wound up with the cars that we have this year and how we got sort of where we are now? Okay. Well, we've kind of seen all the cars. You know, there's still a lot of details that we haven't seen and pre-season testing will sort that out. But we've got the bulk of the information that we need in terms of understanding the main philosophy of where most of the teams have headed. But as you say, there's a, a few things that we need to cover in terms of what's changed from 2020 to 2021. The first one I think to cover is the fact that to reduce costs, the FIA uh, bought in uh, a measure whereby the chassis from last year was homologated and that allowed the teams only to spend two tokens on a an area of the car that they decided would give them the best reward for performance going into 2021. Um, so, for example, something like the nose cone, a change to that, which we've seen uh, one of the teams or maybe two of the teams, I think, actually have changed their nose would have cost them their two development tokens, whereas other areas of the car might only cost one token. And then you can change, you know, as many token 
so as you can until you get to that two token spend. On top of that, we've also got a list of items that have been changed in order to reduce the amount of downforce that's created by the cars uh, by approximately 10%. However, that 10% will not be 10% by the time we get to, to pre-season testing. That was the original target. And I think that's something that perhaps isn't really thought about. The teams will have already narrowed that gap quite considerably. And in fact, I think that we might already be at a point by the time we come out of pre-season testing where some of the teams might have made up the full 10%. We'll have to see how the new tyres that have also been introduced for 2021 also have an impact on that as well because obviously that's one factor where the teams haven't had too much of an advance warning on the changes in hand from Pirelli. Right, they haven't. And what intrigues me about this, even when you talk about it, is my understanding or my understanding of it at the time, at least, was that a vast majority of these changes were being made because the teams failed to approve brand new tires from Pirelli to deal with the extra energy that was being generated because the cars had added on so much downforce since 2017, where they went and gave them lots more downforce to play with in the first place. And yet now we not only have this 10% cut, but we still have new tires. So has it had the situation gotten so bad that the FIA just basically said, we're overruling you teams, you're getting new tires because we don't want more. We don't want Lewis Hamilton finishing with three wheels like he did last year. Yeah, I mean, predominantly the, the problem that the entire sport faced was that when they arrived in Austria, nobody realised the actual potential of what had gone on with the downforce levels. And immediately the FIA was looking at the data and realising that the teams had piled on a huge amount of downforce uh, going into 2020. So they immediately came up with a raft of changes in the technical regulations to try to cut that downforce down. A few races later, they realised, hang on a minute, they're now adding even more downforce on top of this. So they made further changes to the technical regulations. Then, further as we got into the season, Pirelli came along and said, well, you've made these changes to the regulations to, to cut the downforce by approximately 10%, but we still think that there is a, a, a potential for us to bring a tyre that will improve the racing as well as deal with the problems that we're going to encounter in terms of downforce. So it, it's a multi-stage process. It wasn't something that just happened overnight and the FIA simply said, this is what we're going to get. Um, it, it took time to change and adapt to the regulations and also obviously uh, have Pirelli involved in trying to understand how to not only limit the problems that we might have, whereas you've just mentioned with Hamilton finishing with three tyres on his wagon, um, you know, that we also have decent racing going into a year that is kind of a bridge year because we should have obviously the all new car already this season. Yeah, no, we, we definitely should. And one of the things that has really struck me as, as I listen to the team's talk is how many of them are essentially saying that we are almost at a point, you know, certainly by the time we get to the first or second race at worst, we're going to be at a point where we, we've given up on this car essentially. And, you know, maybe the interns will be working on it and we're already looking at 2022. So, so what can we really expect in terms of what shows up on track for this season, because it really, between the pandemic and the new regulations, it seems like uh, people are, are it's going to be just sort of like run what you brung all season long. 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of development for this year's car, I think we are really going to be looking at uh, maybe a couple of big upgrades coming for, for, through for teams. You will see, I imagine, some convergence on solutions where teams see what other teams have come up with during the winter and pre-season and put that in their wind tunnel to try and understand it. And perhaps that will give them enough performance to then create those parts for the real-life race car. Um, but I don't think we're going to have a huge amount of um, updates throughout the course of the year, unless you see a team that potentially think that it would be better for them to take a win this year as opposed to having a run at next year. And also behind the scenes, we also have to consider there's another couple of implications on the whole uh, design aspect of the cars is that we've got the, cask, uh, the cost cap coming and we've also got the new... Uh, regulations regarding the scaling back of wind tunnel usage. So obviously the likes of Mercedes, for example, this year have, I think it's around 12% less wind tunnel and CFD time to compare with the likes of Ferrari, who finished down in uh, sixth position last season. So all of these factors um, are going to drive the performance that we see both on track this year and also where we see the teams facing development next year because you're going to want to basically say, well, if we're stopping development now, uh, we you know that we can throw everything behind uh, next year's car. In honesty, if teams haven't got their 2022 car in the wind tunnel on the 1st of January this year, as in i.e. three months ago, then there's something going wrong with their development plan anyway. Because, you know, the likes of Mercedes, as I've just mentioned, have a curtailed amount of wind tunnel and CFD time. So they want to get as much time in the wind tunnel on the new car when the cutoff started as was possible. Yeah. So if we're looking ahead to that, and you mentioned, I think, intriguingly, that this might be the year, this might be the time that we see someone actually try and steal the win. I mean, are you are you kind of implying that if I'm Red Bull, I might decide that winning this year is preferable to competing next year a little bit, which I mean, given that it's Honda's send-off year, you might think that if ever they were going to try and pull the trick on Mercedes, now might be the time. Honestly, Matt, I think there's a different team I'm thinking of and it's not Red Bull. Um I I I honestly believe that Red Bull will follow the pattern that uh, Mercedes will, in as much as that they've thrown the kitchen sink at this car already. We'll see upgrades throughout the year, but they'll be mooted compared to what you know you might see elsewhere. If I'm being honest, the one team that I suspect will throw the kitchen sink at 2021 will be Aston Martin because they have the biggest opportunity to finish higher than you would have ever seen a racing point finish because uh, the, the car looks very good in its own right. Um, and they have, have the ability, I think, to be able to push upwards towards the Mercedes and Red Bull ahead of them. Okay. So, I mean, they, they, they finished fourth last season. I don't think anyone would be really surprised were they to outdo McLaren this year because McLaren, although they have the benefit now of a Mercedes engine as well, they have the disadvantage of having had to fit it in, in, in many ways that we expect that to hobble them. Plus, they have a new driver, although I suppose you could say the same for Aston. But you really think that they might push Red Bull this year with the design of their car? Honestly, it would be my target if I was looking 
uh, at where I wanted to finish this year. Um, you've got to be ambitious at the end of the day. And it appears from the way that they've designed the AMR21 that they are being ambitious. So I mean, we haven't really seen the Red Bull is, is, is the thing. You know, there's no, there's no yardstick as such because Red Bull have been very, very secretive about the RB16B. And that means that we, when we get to see the car, I think not even in pre-season testing will we see the full RB16B. I think when we get to the, the first race of the season is when we'll see them really unleash things. But again, as you mentioned, the interesting component there is what Honda bring to the table in their last year and how much performance benefit that gives Red Bull in their chase to, to uh, Mercedes. Okay, well, uh, let's go ahead. I mean, because I had sort of sorted out our topics. And of the things that you have seen, intriguing, let's start with Red Bull. They seem to have messed with their rear suspension rather a lot. What's going on there? And, and why do you think they did that? Okay, so as we were talking earlier about tokens and the hom- homologation process, um, the tokens that Red Bull have decided to spend are at the rear end of their car. They spent a lot of time last season trying to sort out the aerodynamic profile of the front end of their car. They were having issues with the correlation between their CFD and wind tunnel and the racetrack. And so we saw in the early phases of 2020 where they would have you know, multiple different arrangements on either car as they investigated what really was and wasn't working. So they've got to a point, in my opinion, towards the end of the season where they chucked the kitchen sink at this thing and got that whole thing sorted out, tuned in. But at the rear end of the car is where they've decided that they can make the most gains. And in doing so, what they've done is they've adopted the Mercedes-style rear suspension, uh, which effectively flips over the wishbone so that it can be mounted higher on the crash structure. Um, And they put the uh, steering track rod end across the front end of the, the assembly. Now, This all feeds into the fact that the teams are obviously trying to feed as much airflow as they possibly can into the Coke bottle region, which is going to be even more of a primary uh, concern for them this season based on the fact that obviously we've got narrower floors ahead of that. On top of that, you've obviously got the channel alongside the diffuser where you've got the edge of the sidewall of the tyre and the diffuser itself, which is very, very susceptible to the squirt that comes off of the tyre into the natural flow of the diffuser, which again, the diffuser has the, the the strakes taken up by 50 mil. So all of these things in the regulations are designed to handicap the teams and the teams are then pushing against that factor, trying to recover that performance and indeed in some cases I would imagine actually exceeding the performance that they previously had and in terms of Red Bull obviously their biggest concern is being able to keep the amount of rear end downforce that that has been their major key design component over the years as we all know they've they've excelled when it comes to designing the rear end of their car and the diffuser and so as I mentioned the two tokens that they've spent has been spent on rear suspension and gearbox in order to tighten that area alter the suspension geometry and free up the airflow into the the coke bottle region and alongside the uh, the edge of the diffuser okay so uh having talked about red bull let's let's talk about mercedes now what have you seen a similar push i mean i know uh we saw the the new serrated was it the serrated mirror things but you you have sort of implied in articles from time to time that that this will be cleaning out the desk drawers for them 
in terms of what they bring to this car, despite the changes made to hobble them by the FIA. And by them, I mean all of the teams, not just Mercedes. So what can we expect? What have you seen from them that makes you go, ah, this is, this is, this is how they are going to keep the advantage they had over Red Bull? Because it sounds like Red Bull is, has made a pretty serious push to improve things for themselves. Have you seen a similar area yet from Mercedes? Positing for a minute, we'll get to the things that we haven't seen in, 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 as soon as we get through this section. Well, I think the biggest thing to think about with Mercedes is generally the, the pattern that they've taken over the, the hybrid era itself. And is that small, small gains taken in multiple areas will add up to a much larger gain. And so areas of the Mercedes are, the, the, there's just changes throughout the entire car is a simple answer to the question. They've, they've made changes up and down the W12 to try to you know, improve the performance envelope. The biggest thing for me in terms of where Mercedes have perhaps tried to claw back their performance from the losses that have been associated from the changes in the regulations is how tight the packaging is now. I mean, we've been saying for a number of years how tight some of the, the teams have been trying to package components uh, to the centre line of the car. But the W12 is an astounding, tightly packaged rear end um, from the side pods, which have got the more downwash style um, ramp on them, which is something that has kind of been copied up and down the grid uh, to try and get the the airflow over the top of the side pods that comes down, down washing over the side pod and into that mix, into the Coke bottle. And that all ties into the fact that we've now got these narrower floors. So obviously, because you've got the narrower floor, you want to do all the work as early as possible and draw that airflow around. Otherwise, you're just wasting performance that's going to fall off the edge of the floor. So for me, it's in terms of Mercedes, it is a combination of making the small gains count over the entirety of the car. And on top of that, again, they have made improvements to their power unit, which, you know, how do they keep finding gains um, uh, for a power unit that, you know, has dominated the scene since 2014? Um, they have a new inlet plenum on the um power unit this season to try and increase uh, performance. And that's why we see that big blister on the side of the engine cover because they're covering this plenum, uh, which is enlarged slightly over last season. It was already quite a large component there in let plenum, especially when you look back at what it looked like in 2014 when they didn't have the variable inlets. Um, so yeah, to me, Mercedes, the W12 is really a progress from every iteration that we've seen before it. And it's just tiny, tiny improvements, but globally all around the car. Now, I'm also remembering that in talking about this power unit, the power unit from last year was kind of restricted. And I want to say it was cooling, but I, they, they had some reliability issues, I think, with the MGUK as well. So are they also now able to unlock more of that performance? And maybe that will just add to an already painfully dominant situation here? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can never go as far as saying that anybody's going to do anything but Mercedes taking a win uh, in this hybrid era because of the dominance that they've shown already. Uh, in terms of the MGUK problem, uh, I believe it was a manufacturing issue that they were having um, because it didn't really affect the works team as much as everybody else. Um, Williams, are, I know, had a couple of failures, as did Racing Point. Um 
but apparently it was a it was a manufacturing issue in terms of the way that the MGUK was put together, uh, and that is the reason why we had those issues. They've reportedly fixed the issues that they had by making changes to the way that they do manufacture the MGUK. Uh, so obviously we've got a slightly different design going into this season. Uh, but in terms of gains, again, I think the power unit side of things work in very much the same way, way the chassis team do, in is that they just try to find those tiny gains all over. Uh, and that usually adds up to something pretty significant uh, in terms of performance. Okay, then, well, since we're on Mercedes power, let's have a quick talk about Aston. Now, you said that just from a goal-setting point of view, you could see them maybe chucking the kitchen sink at outdoing, certainly, McLaren, who finished ahead of them. Obviously, Alpine, who will probably want to be in that mix, whether or not they can be, is another issue. And maybe even, given Red Bull on the odd day, a scare, or Mercedes itself, have you seen anything thus far that indicates to you that they they will have the car to do that? Well, I think the the thing to think about with Aston Martin is that this year's car is not a copy of last year's Mercedes. So obviously there was a lot made last year of what happened with the uh, W10 lookalike that arrived as the racing point, which is obviously now Aston Martin. Um, And one of the key factors uh, going back to tokens is what... Aston Martin have decided to do this year with their tokens. Uh, They have decided to change the side impact structures, uh, which allows them to have the spar underneath the side pod inlet, which everybody on the grid now has. They had it in 2019, but when they moved to the Mercedes design for 2020, they chucked that away because they were copying what Mercedes had done. Last year, Mercedes then moved to that design. And now this year, we see Aston Martin doing the same. So they've spent their two tokens on their chassis uh, to obviously make improvements there. And that, again, a bit like the way that we're looking at Mercedes in terms of taking smaller areas of the car to make up bigger gains, that is what I'm seeing over at Aston Martin. A lot of their car is about the smaller quantity gains in order to globally improve the, the performance of the car. Interestingly, though, where they've spent their two tokens, they've effectively got two tokens for free as well because they've got Mercedes gearbox and rear suspension from last year on the AMR21, which means that they are getting the aerodynamic gains that Mercedes loaded themselves last year on their car. On top of that, I expected to see a more bloated version, let's say, of a Mercedes when I looked at the Aston Martin, and I was surprised when I saw how tight they'd managed to get their packaging. Aerodynamically and packaging-wise, the Aston Martin looks extremely tight, especially if you compare it to the other two Mercedes-powered teams, McLaren and Williams. Uh, you know that They are so much closer to Mercedes in that respect uh, that it is quite astounding, the, the job that they've done this year. And as I say, you, you have to question where their development uh, has gone in terms of what have they pushed towards in terms of this year's car or 2022's car. Right. But either way, it sounds like you're definitely giving them the nod over McLaren. And well, I guess Williams was never really a part of that equation to begin with. But whereas McLaren were able to push them through incredibly consistent results and being good at the tracks where they could, where they could dial in, Aston now not only has much more of a Mercedes than they did last year in ways that really matter, what I'm hearing from you, 
but also they have um they have another year's worth of understanding how this aerodynamic concept works in real life. Yes. And interestingly, what I think has happened with Aston Martin in order to create this much tighter packaging is I think they're the first team to move to the charge cooler setup that Mercedes have been running since 2014. Um, I can't say anything until I've actually seen the internal packaging, but it very much looks to me as if they have gone along those lines in order to be able to get that packaging uh, involved. Okay, so explain to me what you mean when you say charge cooler that only Mercedes runs. Because I thought, do you mean liquid or do you mean just a particular kind of setup? Okay, so this, this is where naming gets it a little bit tricky and why I tend to use uh, liquid to air cooling rather than charge cooling. So liquid to air cooling in my terms is charge cooling um, and intercooling is air to air cooling. Uh, so predominantly the Mercedes powered teams aside from the works team have always used air to air coolers. The problem with that is that you end up with a slightly asymmetric layout in the side pods because you have an intercooler in one side of the side pod. So usually on the left-hand bank and on the right-hand bank, you'll have the radiator for cooling the engine. Now they have different aerodynamic properties, very slight, but they do. They also have different weight characteristics. And it also means for me, most importantly, having messed around with boosted engines quite a bit, you have a very different length of tract between the intercooler and the inlet. So from turbocharger through the intercooler to the um, inlet, obviously, is a longer tract than if you use a charge cooling setup, which is what Mercedes have used throughout the hybrid era. And they usually have their charge cooler arrangement so that it's banked up in front of the um, engine itself in the in a void uh where you would expect to have the fuel cell. Uh, so it's a it's an arrangement that we see on the Ferrari. You know, Ferrari have used a, a charge cooling or a liquid to, to air uh, cooler setup since the start of the hybrid era too. Uh, but obviously it's a very different arrangement for, for both of those engines. Okay, so now that is that is a genuinely intriguing thing. But you're now let me understand, you're saying you think that's what they've done, but you're not gonna be sure until you see the cars on track with the engine covers off. Yeah, I need I need to see them in in the garage with the covers off, and then we'll know straight away what's what's going on. Um, but for me, the way that the Aston Martin is packaged, I would suggest I would lean on the side of it being uh, a more Mercedes style package. And have they bought that from Mercedes off the shelf, or have they had to go out and do it themselves? Uh, again, uh, I don't know the answer to those questions just yet. Well, I, I know that if I could, I would just buy the thing off the shelf because that seems much simpler. But I'm not, as, as you say, I'm not sure myself which they'd be uh, permitted to do under the regulations or desire to do uh, on their own. They, they would be allowed under the regulations because all of the Ferrari powered teams buy that from Ferrari as oh. part of the power unit package. Okay, well, now there's a thing that I also did not know. But let, then let's talk about if Aston right now is the front runner their nearest competition is either going to come from if we're assuming McLaren to take a step backwards to deal with their new power unit. And it sounds like it's not packaged as well. I don't know if we should really make that assumption, but for the purposes of moving things along, we will. That leaves us with either Alpine or AlphaTauri, perhaps as Aston's nearest competitor. Who would you like to talk about next? Well, I think you're missing a certain car there, Matt. 
Am Is I now? Because they had such a poor year last year that you're deciding to miss them out. Oh, yeah. Certain red team that has a splash of Hulk colour on their engine cover this year. Oh, my goodness. It's like, the, it's like the Hulk's trying to escape out the side of the car. Yes. Well, you know, it's funny. You get so used to dividing the teams up into the top three and then, you know, the best of the rest that I forget that I guess suppose, I suppose really Ferrari kind of does belong in the, we'll see how much progress they've made. So you want to talk about Ferrari? Let's talk about Ferrari. We have seen their new car and people are already having fun with the green that was on the side of it, aren't they? Yes, not me at all. I haven't been doing any photo shopping at all there on my Twitter feed. Um, haven't been hiding Bonotto behind that logo because it acts like a green screen. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, to talk about the Ferrari, obviously, um, if you talk about the front end of the midfield, I really do think that you have to consider Ferrari re-entering that fray. Um, I do think, I know we've discounted McLaren, but I don't, I'm not discounting McLaren entirely. I do think that they are still going to be at the very front end of that pack. Um, it's just how far... The, there's a difference between each team depending on the circuit that we visit, as we know, is very difficult to measure. Um, in terms of Ferrari, though, again, um, it's a team that has come off the back of a poor season last year. So anything that they they get this year is going to be seen as a bit of a win. Um, but for me, I do think that they will perhaps make more progress uh, than they're letting on to. And that's because obviously they'll have more performance from the power unit, which was really handicapped last year. Uh, they've got an all new power unit this year, uh, which is going to unlock a serious amount of performance compared to, to last year and perhaps bring them back closer to where they were in 2019. On top of that, from uh, the chassis perspective side of things, we've obviously got them making changes to their car. They've decided to spend their tokens at the rear of the car as have Red Bull. So they've made changes to their rear suspension and gearbox carrier in order that they can get those aerodynamic gains we've already mentioned um, that Red Bull have tried to uh, deal with. But interestingly for me, the key design change for Ferrari is at the front of the car and how they've basically managed to create surgery on their nose um, without having to spend tokens on it. So they've made some interesting changes in terms of narrowing the uh, front wing pillars, which then means that they can open up more space for the cape. The cape's been expanded so that it goes further back along the nose body, so that it meets with the turning veins. And that entire area will unlock quite a significant amount of performance if they've managed to get things right. And especially this is important, as we've mentioned before, because of the changes that have happened to the, the floor, we're obviously having to feed airflow correctly from the front end of the car to the rear end of the car to make that performance. So any changes made at the front end are going to be very important uh, for 2021. So if Ferrari have managed to sort out some of the issues that perhaps they've had in the past with the car, then you know they'll, they'll unlock performance globally. Okay, and you could see them then competing with Aston to, to finish up or mess with the Red Bulls on a good day. But do we really think over uh, over the haul of a whole season they're at a point and especially because they've brought in a new driver and i know i know aston has a new driver as well but i'm betting that ferrari probably isn't quite as easy to drive as that aston and, and we've seen ferrari eat new drivers before in most unpleasant ways so but do we really think that they will can and will be there or thereabouts in your average race fingers crossed 
we all want to see good racing at the end of the day. Yeah. It's the, the simple fact of the matter. We want to see the cars closer. And what I always find fascinating about the end of a regulation change, uh, you know, heading into a new regula- set of re- regulations um, where we've had, you know, since 2017, I know we've had a number of cutbacks, let's say, from what was originally uh, produced as the regulation set. But this is a relatively steady set of regulations from 2017 till now. Um which means that inevitably you see convergence. So every car that you look at on the grid looks fairly similar. There are obviously nuanced differences between each of them to account for the way that they've designed their aerodynamic profile or how they've covered up the internal components. But predominantly you see convergence and that inevitably leads to closer racing. And I think that's what we're going to see this year. Obviously in the midfield, it's going to be very, very tight because you've got a lot of teams that should potentially be much closer together. And from a technical point of view, you can see areas of the car where, you know, everybody's looked at the designs at the front end and thought, well, we need to perhaps adapt our design to suit that. You know, Ferrari side pods, for argument's sake, again, are very, very tight and have this downwash ramp into the Coke bottle with a high-waisted rear cooling outlet. You know, it's a generalised theme that you see across the grid with the exception of maybe two teams, which we'll cover in a moment. Um, so, yeah, for me, my money would be that Ferrari will be up there with the front end of the midfield battling away and perhaps on their day can get in the mix at the front. Well, wow, that's going to make, I think, a lot of fans very happy Happy because last year it was, um, well, I hate to use the word dismal, but it was a long season if you were just a Ferrari fan and nothing else. Uh, so let's talk about these two teams. Now, now, now you've intrigued me. I'm going to guess one of them is Alpine because I have, I, I have on my very own, with my very poorly trained eye, noticed something about their side pods which probably means that it's nothing but a misdirection and not really important. But I've kind of got my fingers crossed that maybe it actually is something and I can feel proud of myself. What is going on with their side pods? Is it just down to the way that they've designed their engine? And why are they going what looks like to me a very different direction from almost everyone else on a grid? Okay, so there's two things about the Alpine, not only the side pods, but the engine cover as well. But we'll cover the side pods first because you mentioned those. And the side pods, as you mentioned, are a very different design from everybody else on the grid. Everybody else has started to transition into this downwash ramp style of side pod where they try to wrap the radiators and, and intercoolers extremely tightly and use that profile uh, as a ramp section to get the airflow down onto the floor quickly. Alpine have decided to do something a little bit differently. They've decided to use what's called an undercut side pod. And it's an old school sort of 2030, 2012, 2013 tactic, whereby you raise the the profile of the side pod into more of a C shape. And then you drive airflow on the underside of the undercut, as you call it, which when you think about the narrower floor, You also then think, well, having an undercut can't be a bad thing because you're kind of mitigating the problems of having that narrower floor. So it's kind of a what will work differently or better scenario. Um, This is a more what I would consider to be old school approach to that aerodynamic problem, uh, which has allowed them to package things differently inside. Uh, The other thing that we obviously don't know about the Renault is that we can't compare it to other teams because they're the only team now running the Renault power unit or Alpine power unit or whatever they want to call it now. Um, 
But this has also had a, a bit of an effect on the upper surface of the engine cover because even though they had a massive engine cover previously because they tried to put a lot of their coolers along the center line of the car, this year it's even bigger. Looks like they've got a canoe on the top of the, the engine cover um, to try and obviously enclose the, the components that are aligned down the center of the car, which then puts more weight on the top of the car as well. So it is a very different approach that Alpine have decided to take with the A521. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what kind of performance they get from it uh, as a consequence and whether anybody else then can take that concept and run with it themselves. Um, I can't see that happening because people obviously are, are going to limit the development this year, but it will be interesting to see what happens at Alpine. Yeah, I, I was really intrigued. I didn't cotton onto the engine cover as much, but they have basically been doing this and they're now doing this, but just more so for this season is what you're saying. Yeah, effectively. And I, again, it will come down to the fact that they've perhaps had to make some concessions in terms of their power unit design, the architecture of the power unit to try to make gains. So like I've already mentioned with the inlet plenum size increasing on the uh, Mercedes power unit, we've probably seen the same thing happen for Renault, which means you have to then make concessions in terms of how you sort out your bodywork uh, that wraps around it. But it has left this rather big bulge behind the airbox, um, which, as I say, looks like they've... Uh, if you see somebody driving down the road with a canoe strapped to the top of their car, it looks pretty similar. Uh, and as I mentioned, they've got the high-waisted side pods, which to me reminds me of the double floor solution that uh, Toro Rosso tried a little while back as well. Um, so it being really interesting to see how that works out for Alpine. Yes, well, I think we all are, because, of course, we're all fans of both Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon. They, they certainly don't have any, any people who absolutely despise them now, do they? They are beloved universally by all Formula One fans. Of course they are, yes. All right. Uh, so what was this other team? What was the other team that you said had gone differently uh, relative to the rest of the grid? Um, okay, I'm so the other team that is kind of at the other end of the spectrum is Williams. And it's because they haven't really changed anything since last year. Their side pods, again, are very, very similar in design to what they had last season. They do have this downwash ramp that I've already talked about, uh, but it's very, very aggressive, as in it literally comes over the top and hits the deck of the floor. Um, so you create almost what, if you remember the Coanda ramp that Red Bull had uh, during the the blown diffuser age. Um, it's very similar in the way that they're doing that because they're trying to drive the floor uh, very early on. And then that means that obviously they have a very high-waisted cooling outlet beyond that. Uh, but it, again, it's very interesting to see that they haven't moved on from that design or at least not from the renders that we've seen so far. Um, perhaps they'll they'll have something different when the car hits the track in pre-season testing. Um, but I don't believe they will because I believe that Williams are actually throwing all their eggs in a certain 2022 basket, especially if they've spent zero tokens for 2021. Okay, you're telling me that Williams has spent zero tokens. I've heard the same about Haas. So where do we think the battle of last year's cars with some things cut off is really going to wind up this year? Do you think that they will be more competitive with each other at least, which would give us something to watch? Or is Williams just going to be that half step behind that they were last season because neither one of them seems to have made much of an effort and is probably banking everything on doing better in 22? 
Well, I think the difference with Haas compared to Williams is the gearbox exchange uh, with Ferrari. So although they won't have spent their tokens uh, developing the chassis, they could well have the 2020 uh, Ferrari gearbox arrangement or the new gearbox arrangement, um, which we know was a problem for them last year. Uh, Roman Grosjean let slip the, the issues that they were having in terms of uh, dealing with the thermal issues of the suspension rising and falling, let's say, uh, rather than uh, being the trick bit of suspension kit it should be. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they've managed to get rid of those niggles. And I think the biggest thing that will decide how well Haas and Williams do in comparison to one another will be how they understand the new tyres. Because going back to that, it is going to be a significant factor for all of the teams. Um, A change in profile has an impact on not only the aerodynamic profile change because of how the deformation works with the tyre, but also the grip levels. So it'll be interesting to see who gets on top of those issues first, because they're incredibly difficult to model in the wind tunnel as well. Uh, And so obviously the teams with the most resources tend to do best in those situations. Right. Sorry, just a quick follow-up. When you say they're incredibly difficult to model, do you mean all tyres or do you mean this specific profile of tyre? I mean all wind tunnel tyres, really. Um, Trying to get a a correlation between what is a 60% wind tunnel tyre to a a full-blown tyre can be tricky for the teams. Uh, Getting a repetitive um, scenario built up, uh, just because you're you're working with something that isn't the actual thing, and it's the one thing that that actually changes the most on the car from run to run. Uh, Something as simple as temperature, for those wind tunnel tyres is a massive factor. You have to imagine the, that they're being sent around on a rolling road and, and all these sort of things. So, um, you know, it's, it is a difficult factor for them to try to control. And I know there's a lot of money and research gone into trying to understand how to get the, a, a more accurate representation from the tyres. Okay, well, as much as I find it entertaining, I will say that I, I think you're getting to the level of detail that's beginning to make even my brain hurt slightly. Just trying to imagine controlling for temperatures and pressures and trying to get the same dynamic performance out of a 60% size tire on a rolling road versus what you would see on an actual car at full size on an actual track. I I, I can't even imagine trying to get to the bottom of that. I feel sorry for whoever's job that is. Yeah, well, there we go. There's the challenges of F1, the, the pinnacle of motorsport, the pinnacle of technology in motorsport. So you you have to try and find those performance gains where they where they're available. Okay. So having talked about Williams and Alpine, uh let's talk about the other A's, Alpha and Alpha. Uh, and now I was quite surprised uh by the onslaught of AlphaTauri at the end of last season, but they seem to have really found something with their design and with the way they are running things. They started off very nowhere at the beginning of last season. Do we expect that pattern again? Or or do you think they're going to come out much stronger at the start of the season this year? I think they will come out much stronger than they did at the start of last year. I think you will see a progress, um, a follow-on from last year, a bit of carryover. Um, Obviously, the interesting point from Alpha Tauri is where they've spent their tokens uh, because they've spent their tokens at the front end of the car, uh, which is obviously... 
uh, different to the majority of the grid. Everybody else seems to have concentrated at the rear. Um, and I'll come back to the rear of their car in a moment as well, because there's another interesting uh, little uh, nugget of information about that particular car. Um, at the front of the car, though, they've changed their nose cone, uh, which is you know, uh, a two-token spend. So it had to be something that was going to give a decent amount of performance if you're going to spend all of your tokens on that that particular area of the car. So they've chosen aerodynamics, basically, is what I'm saying. They've chosen to change the aerodynamic profile of the car at the front in order to make gains at the rear. On top of that, they've also switched to the Red Bull-style steering rack assembly that Red Bull had last year, which means that the steering arms are actually further back than they ordinarily would be um, in the bulkhead. Un- unconventional what Red Bull did last year. And it's all to do with uh, trying to get more gain from the push rod on upright solution. So in other words, when you turn into a corner with push rod on upright, you or the aggressive version of push rod on upright, you end up with the actual front end of the car lowering uh, in-, in relation to your steering input. That, is counterintuitive for the drivers in some respect. And a lot of the drivers didn't want to go down this route back when it became quite a, uh, an intense development program because the driver actually has to pull the steering wheel back over. Normally, you'd find a steering wheel would recenter on its own. Uh, but because of the, the, the dynamics of push rod on upright, you end up having to pull the steering wheel over. You can see that from the onboards. If ever you, you're watching a slow speed corner, you'll see them actually fighting the wheel back over. Um, so they don't like that because it's counterintuitive and it's just the way that the the, the whole assembly has to work to, to obviously counterbalance back into the central position. So it's interesting that Toro Rosso have decided to go with this steering rack arrangement because clearly the two Red Bull technology-based teams now will run with that and they've decided that this rack is something that will give them uh, a performance advantage in terms of the ride height adjustments. Going to the rear of the car, Alpha Tari could have taken a free upgrade on their gearbox and rear suspension. But we all know the problems that Red Bull had last year and the imbalance that they had last year. And they've changed their rear end suspension this year. So Alpha Tari decided not to get the free upgrade because it was probably a free downgrade. Uh, and they've decided that they'll stick with what they had last year in that department. Okay, so that's interesting, and it very much implies that the struggles Red Bull had were at the back of their car more than at the front. I was going to ask initially, before you finished, it came to me like, well, maybe maybe Red Bull has just said to them very politely, you should probably take this front end because we need more data from it to make sure it's it works the way we want it to. But it sounds like it's a genuine performance upgrade for them, and a not insignificant one either, I would suppose. Yeah, I mean, I can't really put a, a figure on it, but at the end of the day, they're, they're not taking it for no reason. It has required them to repackage the front end of the car to to actually put it in in the chassis. So you know, it's not an it's not an easy thing to achieve what they've done. So it has to have a tangible performance benefit at the end of the day, and that's why they've made the switch to that layout. Okay, so my understanding is that their particular advantage of the aggressive pushrod on upright is in slower speed corners because you gain enhanced aerodynamic benefits lowering the front end of the car. And that's only going to come when you turn the steering rack beyond a certain percent. How many other teams are running that aggressive solution? I think Mercedes is, obviously Red Bull is. Anybody else that you're aware of on the grid doing that right now? Pretty much everybody. 
It's one of those things okay. that basically should have been ruled out um, by the regulations a couple of years ago and the development just started to phase in and I think the FIA looked at it, realised that there was an aerodynamic impact but thought, well, everybody's kind of at it, they're just at it at different stages and so, you know, they've just kind of let it slide and uh, I don't believe we will they'll have the ability to do so on the 2022 car uh, but I'm still fishing through all of the regulations on that side of things at the moment. Um, But yeah, it's just one of those avenues of development that I think the FIA just decided that they weren't going to cut off because pretty much everybody was playing that game. So basically they cottoned on to it just a tiny bit too late for it to actually make a difference. Pretty much, yeah. All right, fair enough. Um, Then let's talk about Alfa Romeo. You had kind words for them. I personally kind of liked their livery. So... They seem to have done, uh, they were doing a lot of work at the front too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 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 And I do like their livery as well. Um, cherry red and white. And yes. it's basically a flipped version of last year, isn't it? Which is also the case for the other Alpha on the grid. It seems that Alpha and Alpha just follow themselves in circles. Um, yeah. Basically, the uh, the new Alpha and Mayo has also followed the pattern of the Alpha Tauri in the respect of changing the nose cone. Um, So this year, the design has a much more aggressive cape section than it did last year. Um, So again, it's all about uh, changing the profile of the airflow at the front of the car in order that you funnel that rearwards to make the aerodynamic devices on the car at the rear work attuned to the new rules that we've got for 2021. Uh, so you're just driving that airflow around the, the cape into the bargeboard area, around uh, the side pods into the coat bottle, and obviously just trying to maximise as much performance as possible from the centre line of the car. This is, this is what we're thinking about here, is the centre line of the car. Get that airflow into the centre rather than uh, in the area which has been taken away on the edge of the floor. Predominantly over the last few years, we've obviously had all those slots, strakes, uh, fully enclosed holes, veins, you name it, in front of the rear tyre to try and push the airflow in a better direction alongside the channel uh, of the diffuser. We've lost a lot of that this year, although that's the one thing that we will see in pre-season testing is that we haven't realistically seen everybody's de facto floor for 2021 yet. All of the launch reveals are just kind of giving us an indication as to what's happening there. But all of the teams will have worked exceptionally hard on that floor edge to try to recover performance. And that's why you've seen Mercedes be really coy about it and basically create a carbon fibre piece of uh, bodywork to cover that area so we couldn't see what was going on. Well, now you're going to bring me to my favorite thing. I did want to mention just in terms of alpha, like I'm probably not alone in saying that it seemed a bit disappointing their performance last season. And I'm just wondering if there's any hope of them being slightly more competitive than they were, or, or is this all just sort of window dressing to stay in the same place? And like everybody else, they're really betting on 2022 to, to try and climb back up the grid. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right at the end of that statement. Is as much as that, uh, you know, we all want to see Alfa Romeo or what is Sauber effectively return to the sort of mid to front end of the midfield. Um, but unfortunately, the issue that they have is a budget constraint, in my opinion. 
Uh, yes, they have a, a title sponsor in the form of Alfa Romeo, which is obviously money fed down from the Ferrari group. They have some personnel from Ferrari. Uh, but in effect, their biggest issue, at, at that team has predominantly been budget throughout the years. Whenever they've had a bigger budget, you've seen them rise slightly through the ranks. And so the cost cap that's been bought in and the sliding scale for uh, CFD and wind tunnel will only go to help teams like Alfa Romeo and Alfa Tauri and those at the far end of the grid uh, return perhaps closer to the front end of the pack. That is the more exciting aspect of what these new regulations will encourage in the future. I'm not sure we'll get there straight away in 2022, unfortunately, but I think over time we'll start to see the the back end of the grid start to form up closer to the front. Well, that's, that is exactly what we, we would be hoping for from a set of regulations like that. And I'm, and I guess we will just have to see. It's a shame because I always think of them going back to Sauber is even though they, much like uh, Force India that came after, didn't always have the biggest budget. Uh, my feeling was they would oftentimes come up with interesting and different solutions that would then be copied up and down the grid. And so I certainly hope for everyone's sake that they can get back to doing that sort of thing again in the not too distant future. I mean, I will say that they do still have some novel and interesting solutions that does then find its way further up the grid. It's just that the size and scope of that performance that they're gaining from those solutions aren't big enough to make the void close down. You know, you the, the, the time frame that I imagine that you're mentioning is around sort of 2010, to 2012-13, which is when they still had the money filtering through the process of being a BMW team. And they still had the advantage that they had at that point of having the wind tunnel and the resources bought for them by BMW. And now we're in a phase whereby, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling a little bit in terms of resource, cash. Um, and, and as I say, I think the, the big impact will come when the cost cap and the uh, sliding scale really start to come into effect. Okay. So you've talked about Mercedes hiding things. Uh, for the cars that intrigue you the most, what have they hidden? that you're, you're most desperate to see. So I, I will start, we'll start with Mercedes. They've obviously hidden the entire back of the car, including placing drivers in clever places while they took their, t- took their little duty pictures uh, when they were on, on their track day and whatnot. So what do you really need to see to evaluate these cars? Um, the, the ones that are going to be fighting at or near the front? Well, as I've just mentioned, and you've just mentioned, the floor area on the Mercedes is going to be the most intriguing. Uh, the diffuser area, because we never get to see rear-end shots of cars during um, launch season, as I like to call it. Uh, we have to wait for pre-season testing. And even then, we might have a bit of a, a game with some of the teams uh, not arriving with the parts that are then going to fit on the car in the last day of testing, uh, just to try to confuse people. Uh, because of how quickly I think that a lot of teams now can copy ideas uh, and and try to figure out how to best improve their own cars. Um, It's the same for for Red Bull as well, though. Uh, Red Bull, as I mentioned earlier, we've only, I think we've had two shots of the RB16B, which effectively showed us last year's car with a a few new bits and pieces around it. Um, 
we know that they've got the rear suspension change because that we can see in the photographs. Uh, but we have, we've only seen the floor that they tested in Porto Mayo and in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so as I mentioned, we'll probably see progress there. Be interesting to see what they've done on the diffuser's edge near the sidewall uh, of the tyre. Uh, and certainly what they've done in the central portion of their diffuser because they started the trend to have the strakes mounted in a diagonal direction rather than straight down. Whether that continues, because obviously you gain some extra performance, whether they'll even add some more tilt to those diffuser strakes will be interesting. Uh, but in terms of the front end of the grid, it's certainly the rear end of the car that I'm most interested in. Um, in terms of other teams up and down the, the, the grid, I think we've already pretty much seen the Aston Martin. I don't think they've held much back. I think we've we've seen what the AMR21 is pretty much going to look like when it hits the track in Bahrain. Uh, in terms of McLaren, I'll be interested to see how they've made progress from what we saw in the launch photos as they were the first team to uncover their M car. And um, yeah, up and down the grid, there's lots of things being hidden. It's always the same. It's part of the game and it's all about having a look through those uh, photographs that, that are going to come through very rapidly over a three-day period. Because remember, that's another factor that we have to consider this year. We've only got three days' worth of testing, not six. Uh, so things are going to be really compacted for testing. Um, and barge boards, the barge board cluster, as I now like to call it, uh, is going to be incredibly changed over a very short period of time, I would have thought, up and down the grid. Okay, well, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about some power unit news, but this presents me with a lovely opportunity to talk about actual testing, which is coming up. What should our listeners and or viewers utterly ignore in testing? And, and what, what are we going to be able to take away? I mean, is this going to be the kind of thing where we're not going to see real parts on the cars till we get to the first race? As, as you were talking about, are there going to be distractions and, and things we should you know, easily get taken in by that won't really matter in the long run. So as, as as for all we're going to hear about testing, sort of what should be ignored and like what are the things that if you want to take something away from it, you can pay attention to and, and really know that you've gotten some useful information from. Okay, so I think the f- most important thing to think about with testing is that we don't know the parameters in which anybody's running. So we don't know the fuel levels they're on. We don't know... In, in some circumstances, how long the stint length has been on a set of tyres because that might be the second or third time that that tyre has been used. Um, so finding headline times and using that as a yardstick for how good performance is, is an absolute mugs game. Don't look at the headline times is the, the, the simple fact. Don't look at the time on the fastest tyre either because it will be unrepresentative. Look at the times on the medium tyre and look at stint lengths and try to get an average for the performance that you're seeing from a car. Clearly, there'll be people like myself that will break some of these issues down. But in terms of actual outright performance, testing is a big no-no. I know we've only got three days this time around, but even so, I don't think teams will literally bolt on a set of tyres and do a qualifying lap. And on top of that, you have to remember... If you're trying to compare teammates, which everybody seems to want to do, they'll be running at different times in the day. So you have to think of things like track temperatures and 
were they disturbed in that run versus what their other the other driver had in their run? Was there a red flag that disturbed things that were going on with the car and the tire temperatures and everything else that you have associated? So the the simple answer to your question, Matt, is that there's a lot that you have to take into account in terms of uh, testing times. Um, I prefer to take a look at how the cars look out on track as well to give me a, give myself an indication of to how well the the driver is finding that workload with the car you know you can just tell by the body language of certain cars that they're not happy you only have to look at what we had with red bull last year it was very easy to see that the drivers were struggling with the uh, rb16 in testing last year um, although the team clearly were trying to hide those factors and so yeah we the, the simple answer is, is that there is no easy way of finding out who is the best uh, during testing. Um, we have to wait for the first race for that in reality, but we can get some indicators. Okay, so it seems to have always been a thing, like how many laps are run overall in testing? Is that something we should pay a lot of, a lot of attention to? Or like, you know, if you're within, you know, half a country mile of, you know, Mercedes, who always will certainly run the most laps unless... You know, we're all very, very surprised during testing. If you're within a half a country mile, can we just assume your reliability is kind of okay? But on the other hand, if you've run 20 laps over three days, there might be a problem. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you've only run 20 laps over three days, you've got a bit of a problem. Um, turning up without a car is always an, a problem as well, which we've seen in the past. And uh, that's uh, that that can cause you a few problems going into, uh, into the season. Uh, but in terms of, teams kind of sandbagging as well you know the the, the teams are play, will play games with one another uh in terms of not wanting to give away too much performance uh, and if you can get hold of the split times on laps not just the lap time but the sector times that can also give you a little bit of insight into the performance and how the tires are behaving because everybody forgets that there's drop off on the tires and where is a driver making gains on a certain part of the the track that's the that's the key to the drivers and them understanding how they are going to get the best of the performance from their car over a stint and over uh, the course of one lap for qualifying uh, and dialing themselves in with just 3 days so obviously you know you're going to have a split in the ter- in terms of williams they've got three drivers to 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 deal with because they've got latifi on on board they've got uh, George Russell, and they've got Nassani uh, taking one of the days. But the likes of Mercedes will obviously have a one-and-a-half-day split. Now, who's getting the morning session, the afternoon session uh, on each day? And apparently they're also changing the times that the track's available um, for each day as well. So you'll have, on a, I think on the Saturday we go later, uh, I think the, the first session starts at 10 a.m. rather than 8 a.m. for argument's sake. So we're going to have a difference in terms of the temperatures out on track because of that scenario, which is an interesting factor that perhaps we haven't had uh, in Barcelona before. All right. So now it just sounds like Drive to Survive is trying to foment drama between drivers so they can film it for next season's for next season's show. I mean, but, but that, that could be a real bone of contention because there could be a significant performance difference. Between the two times. I mean, probably the drivers won't care that much, but for the people who follow the drivers and use these sorts of things to argue with each other about, that, that is a real consideration to make then, isn't it? 
Yeah, and this is always one of the factors that is difficult to swallow that uh, that you don't have two cars available to the teams during testing. You know, they have to share a car. Um, I would have thought, based on the fact that, you know, we were truncating the session down to three days, uh, that we would end up in a situation perhaps where uh, they thought about perhaps having two cars available rather than just the one, especially as we've flown everything out to Bahrain for the test, which is only two weeks ahead of the race in Bahrain. It's not like we usually have in Barcelona where we're, you know, the first test is months in advance of the first race. Uh, and then you're, you know, you're shipping a totally different car off to to the race itself in Australia under totally different conditions. We're having a situation here where we, we should have relatively uh, stable conditions. Well, I actually um, did, did some looking into uh, shipping and, and discovered that Teams aren't actually allowed to at the at the flyaway races uh, put their garage together till everyone's stuff has arrived, so no one gains an advantage. And I'd be willing to bet there's at least one team on the grid that lacked the resource to have two cars ready at this time. Would be would be my guess, or it would be simply too expensive to have them both on track at the same time. Because as we know, every second that car runs costs lots and lots of money. Yeah, undoubtedly there there are going to be. Um situations where it comes down to cost factors and obviously having things available. Uh, but in terms of getting data when you're three days short, you would have anticipated that, you know, perhaps that might have been a consideration. But as you say, those factors do come into play. And especially uh, important, as you mentioned earlier, is the fact that um, if if a team struggles in terms of mileage, uh, let, let's imagine they have red flags. That's one thing to bear in mind in the first couple of days of testing. Uh, don't expect the cars to have the wick turned up because you do not want a red flag situation. You do not want a power unit failure because it's going to cost you so much time out on track. Uh, I mean, if you're going to blow something up, you want to do it just before lunch or just at the end of a session. So that's when you'll see the best times coming in is because they'll turn the, the power unit up knowing that they'll have a little bit of time that they can overrun for lunch to, to fix something or on the end of the day where they obviously can then get things fit, fitted and sorted for the following day. So the best times are going to come at the end of each session uh, just on the basis that they'll turn the power units up a little bit. It's very rare that I get to correct you, but you said the first couple of days of testing and I think what you meant was the only couple of days of testing. Yes, well, I meant days one and two. Yes, fair enough. Um, before we get out of here, I did have some power unit questions for you. You already talked about the Mercedes improvements that they've made, but I've seen talk that both Ferrari and Renault are now evaluating potentially different engine solutions for 2022 when the engine freeze is going to now come into effect. Uh, what are they looking at? Is it just splitting the turbo like Mercedes did? Is is there other stuff on the table for them? And how likely is it, given the fact they're going to be stuck with whatever they show up with next season, that they will really go ahead and do such a thing? Okay, so multi-barrel question there. The split turbocharger arrangement is one of the main things that I cannot understand that wasn't adopted out the box by the rest of the manufacturers when they realized the potential behind it. I mean, you only have to look at my blog back in 2013 when I drew a split turbocharger co configuration to understand how much packaging you could save by having the turbocharger at each end with the MGU-H in between. 
Uh, this is why we see the likes of Ferrari and Renault-powered teams having more bulk behind the power unit because that effectively is where the turbocharger sits. So you have to have more cooling at that end of the engine, whereas Mercedes don't have to have as much cooling and Honda don't because they also have the split arrangement. Uh, they've changed the way that theirs works down the years. Their first iteration of that power unit was a much smaller uh, compressor and turbine when they started out with McLaren, but they've gone to the pancake shape uh, that Mercedes have on either end. Uh, so, yeah, we are seeing rumours that both Renault and Ferrari will do this. We've actually seen a picture of Renault uh, having tests with such an arrangement on their dyno uh, and it, it's pretty much nailed on that Ferrari will go down that route too. On top of that, there are ideas floating around from the likes of Ferrari that they have some very intricate ideas in terms of what they can do with the plenum and what they can do with um, combustion elements like the pistons and the, the cylinders, etc. But with a freeze coming in, you have to be nailed on that these things are going to work. Because if you suddenly fit this stuff to a car and it doesn't, then you're kind of in trouble. So I do see that there'll be sort of a, a narrowing back in the expectations of what is actually achieved come the next power unit phase for 2023. But on top of that, I do think that the FIA and the teams will work together to try to create some kind of parity rule. I know there has not been any questions over what, will happen in that respect at the moment. But for me, at least, I believe that there will be some caveat within the regulations to allow for some kind of narrowing of the the, the power unit window. Yeah, well, we've heard that the manufacturers have agreed amongst themselves, but right now no one's willing to have it committed to paper. Um, I, I did want to ask, though, isn't it still going to be the case that if my engine has a reliability issue, I am allowed to make a change for that. And given that, might it not encourage, which I'm sure is the last thing the FAA meant by these regulations, but might it not encourage bolting on the wildest of things, thinking that, well, you know, it might break every other race, but once I figure out how to make it reliable, then I can just make that change and I'll have all that extra performance. Yeah, there is that factor. Uh, but I think... I think the FIA will be a little bit wise to uh, that kind of scenario unfolding. I mean, to be honest, we had the freeze with the V8s, didn't we? And it wasn't really a freeze. There was a lot of development going on in the background uh, that was considered to be reliability, but was actually making improvements to the performance of the power units. And we know that factor because of the blown diffuser arguments. Um, there was a lot of development go on during that phase that was considered to be reliability. But when it actually came down to the fact, it was more to do with performance. And so you can quite imagine that we would end up in a very similar situation with what I'm terming to be a soft freeze uh, for 2023. I think there'll be a graduation of it. I think what we'll end up with is a, a soft freeze coming in for 2023. And then as we progress on towards the new power unit, uh, we will see things get much, much tighter. Yeah, which, you know, I, I hate to admit, does seem to be a pretty sensible way to go about it. But I guess when it comes to the engines, you were always going to expect that that was that sort of common sense would wind up prevailing because there's just too much money at stake any other way. Perhaps I've said it wrong then. 
Because does Formula One ever do common sense? I think I, no, but yes. I, I think at the end of the day, nobody quite wants to kill the uh, goose that is laying, you know, the golden egg, so to speak. So I think unless you've got anything else for us, we might be at an end here. I think we're, we're, we're there, Matt. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I feel like we could just go on for ages talking about this stuff, but I think we should probably put that off till our next episode. Yeah, let's let's meet again after preseason testing. It's done. And if you want to take the really deep dive into this, be sure to check out summersf1.co.uk and be sure and hit the link for the latest Missed Apex episode as well. As for me, I'm MattPT55 on the Twitters, and remember, drive hard, play loose, be kind to your tires. Oh, that was fun. It was very fun. Just like all of the car launches. And we learned so much more from you than we did from the launches. That's the best part. A little bit, maybe. Oh, more Packed than a little into bit. a very small container. That's, that's the difference. Without all of the noise surrounding it. It's the packaging, really, that makes the difference. It is. Look at the, look at the Aston Martin. That's where the packaging comes from. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.